Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Hello and welcome to the Money Meaning Show. My name is Jeff Bernier. I'm your host as we monthly get together to have conversations around money and meaning. And so the show is really designed to provide useful content to you, which can help you get clear about what matters most, to help you determine what is your why, what gives you meaning, what gives you purpose, what brings you joy. And importantly, how do we put financial plans in place that give you the freedom and capacity to go pursue your vision of a meaningful life. So that's what this show's about. We just get together monthly and have a uh, informal dialogue around money and meaning topics. And so uh, again, about half the shows are about meaning and purpose and joy and how do you uncover those things. And, and we mix those in with some high level wealth management topics that I think will help you create that capacity. You know, back in 1999, uh, we were in the midst, if you recall, of an environment in the stock market or the equities markets that were driven by technology. Uh, you know, you, if you recall, many people called it the tech bubble. We had, you know, massive run up in the value of technology shares, tech stocks. And the whole large growth sector of the market performed incredibly well over a four or five year period from say 1996 uh, through about 99, if you'll recall. And of course, in early 2000, you know, the, the bubble, uh, you know, uh, burst, uh, if you will. And what did we do during that time? Well, we sort of held our nose and stayed broadly diversified. We didn't concentrate in large growth, even though they were doing really well over a very short period of time. You know, in 2009, you know, 2007 through 2009, we had what some describe as the great financial crisis. It was a period of time where uh, real estate securities and real estate and um, uh, mortgage uh, products um, and the whole banking sector was under great stress. You know, and there were some very scary times, if you'll recall. And the equity market, the stock market, from peak to trough, was down about fifty-seven percent. So it was the great, the greatest downturn, the largest downturn since the Great Depression. And it was a very scary time. And I remember uh, Muhammad El Arian, who was the co-CEO, uh, I believe, at the time of Pimco, which was a large investment management company. I remember reading that he was advising investors and advisors not to rebalance their portfolios. You don't want to be selling bonds and buying stocks at this particular time was his counsel. Well, what we do, we just stuck to our philosophy. So in late 2008, we rebalanced, meaning we sold bonds and bought stocks. In early 2009, we, we did it again, not because we were trying to tie markets, but it was our philosophy. It was our core belief that we wanted to rebalance the portfolios back to our strategic mixes. Um, I'm reminded of this recently, uh, you know, during the pandemic, 
or leading, you know, up to and right after the pandemic, uh, you know, all the stay at home stocks, things like Netflix and Zoom and Amazon, again, went up an incredible amount uh, during the pandemic. Um, and again, so if you owned a handful of these high flying stay at home stocks, you did really well. The broader market did okay as well, quite frankly, but just not near as well as these handful of tech stocks. And I'm thinking about this because that's kind of what today feels like in a way. We've we've had a year so far, as I sit here in August of 2023, where the market is once again dominated by a handful of large growth, primarily tech stocks. And, and the theme, obviously, recently has been AI, artificial intelligence. The reason I want to bring this up is that during times like this, it can be really easy to lose focus and to question what you believe in terms of your investment philosophy. Uh, and investment philosophy is incredibly important. Um, uh, George Goodman wrote a book many, many years ago. He wrote under the pseudonym of Adam Smith, you know, the great, uh, you know, uh, 1776 Wealth of Nations author, Adam Smith. So anyway, George Goodman, many years ago, had a quote in his book. It said, if you don't know who you are, this is an expensive place to find out. And of course, he was meaning Wall Street. So if you don't know who you are, Wall Street and the markets are an expensive place to find out. So you need an investment philosophy that you can stick with. David Booth essentially said something very similar. He said, David Booth, by the way, is the executive chairman of Dimensional Fund Advisors. Uh, he said the most important thing about an investment philosophy is having one you can stick with. So on today's show, I really just want to talk a little bit about this and talk a little bit about what we believe or what I believe. And it's it's critical to know who you are and what you believe. Um, and it's also critical to know what game are you playing? Because what happens is a lot of pundits on the financial media will give you advice or make opinions or tell you what to do. But, you know, they may not be playing the same game that you and I are. Matter of fact, I, I would argue that most of them aren't. Um, so it's really important to know what you believe and what game you're playing. And I thought today, given the environment we're in, it might be useful to go back to some of these first principles, if you if you will. Now, by the way, I am not suggesting some of these ideas I'm going to share today are the only way. I'm not even suggesting they're the best way for everybody. I just believe that for those individuals who are preparing for Act 2 and looking for a rising income stream over a long period of time, uh, and want to have dignity and independence and freedom to go live their life, uh, I believe it's a great way for most people. Uh, it's, it's also a great way for people accumulating wealth. Uh, but again, I think it's particularly important for people that recognize there's more to life than just watching CNBC all day, and, and they want to capture what markets can deliver in a reasonable way. So that's what this is about. So it's uh, so let's go through some of these principles. Number one, you need to get clear. You have to get clear. And you need to get clear on who and what matters to you. You need to get clear on what your values are. And you need to get clear 
on what are the elements for you uniquely that make a great life. So get clear on who you are, what you believe, who you love, and again, what a great life looks like for you. Number two, you need to take inventory. Take inventory of your resources. And these are both financial and non-financial resources. So obviously you look at your, uh, um, you know, your holdings and your assets and your liabilities and your balance sheet. You look at your income, you look at your benefits, you look at your um, estate planning documents, you look at your insurances, um, you evaluate your talent, your human capital, how uh, valuable am I in the marketplace if I need to trade time for income? So um, you need to be sort of holistic as you take inventory. So that's number two. Number three is make a plan. And of course, that sounds pretty simple. Uh, it, as I say it, uh, it, it reminds me of an old Steve Martin joke where he said, how, you know, how to make a million dollars and never pay taxes. And of course, the funny line in the joke was, step number one, go get a million dollars or go make a million dollars. So number two, make a plan sounds fairly simplistic. Obviously, it's not, but it's critically important. And some of the elements of a plan is you'll, you should set both short-term and long-term goals. And I would even suggest you should set what I'll call anti-goals. You know, what are the things that you want to eliminate from your life? So set short and long-term goals, set the things that you want less of, these anti-goals. And in the plan, you define the activities that can move you in direction of your goals and in the direction of the person that you want to become. You develop a strategic plan that ensures both survival and that you can thrive. So it's, it's as my friend Brian Portnoy calls a two-step dance, survive and thrive. So the plan has to have elements that can help you survive bad outcomes and give you the opportunity to go thrive, to go enjoy the journey and be all that you are created to be. It says Morgan Housel says, we should save like pessimist and invest like optimist. Number three, maintain adequate liquidity. We need liquidity. So once you begin funding your plan, decide how much capital you need in the next 24 to 36 months. And these short-term needs should be set aside in accounts with no market risk, no business risk, no liquidity risk, no credit risk, and no interest rate risk. So they need to be safe and liquid, or what most people you know, determine as safe and liquid. Now, we are accepting a high level of inflation risk in these accounts, uh, but we don't care about that. The erosion of purchasing power is not our concern with assets or capital that we're going to use in the next 36 months. You know, negative real yields, in other words, earning less than inflation is not even a concern with these accounts. Remember, survive and thrive. This capital is to help us survive. So that's number three, maintain adequate liquidity. Number four, set your investment policy. Decide the long-term portfolio, the long-term strategic allocation based on your need, ability, and comfort for risk. And of course, we could do uh, several shows, and we have uh, on just on just that. So set your investment uh, policy. So those are four 
foundational steps, I guess, if you will, and just a few additional principles that I want to share before I get into some other more technical ideas about implementation. A few principles. Number one, think long-term. You know, you and I, as investors, uh, are really lucky as individual investors with our own financial plans because we don't have a committee getting together once a quarter evaluating results. At least you shouldn't. We've got a long horizon and we can benefit from that. Uh, you know, so we profit from people that are unable to do that because we want to play the long game. Uh, and, and many investors don't play the long game. We want to diversify broadly, keep cost low and tax efficiency high. We want to be smart about asset location and distribution. We want to have rules around the portfolio, around the maintenance of the portfolio. Rules such as rebalancing. When do you rebalance and how do you rebalance? When do you evaluate the portfolio for tax loss opportunities or tax gain opportunities? And so having a rules-based approach will help you take some of the motion, the emotion out of the process. Because Nick Murray says, um, you know, human nature is a failed investor. And I think that's partly true. And that's the next point. Manage behavior and control what you can control and recognize all those things you can't control. Because over a lifetime investing, investor behavior is likely to have more impact on long-term success or failure of the strategy than the investments themselves, assuming you've got a broadly diversified, low-cost, tax-efficient portfolio. Now, all of these principles, I believe, make for a more satisfying, happier, less stressful journey. And again, that's really important. We want to we enjoy the journey. We don't want to be stressed out about our investments and uh, feel like we've got to, you know, tend the garden every single day because you don't have to. Uh, again, I'll go back to my friend, Brian Portnoy. He, he's, he uses something he calls the happiness equation. The happiness equation is reality. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. The reason that's important as we talk about your investments is we have to have reasonable expectations. Or similarly, and just as important, we have to manage our wants as well. So managing your, your reality, I mean, managing your expectations and your wants. And now, having said all that, owning the world's great businesses has proven to be a great way to build wealth and to preserve wealth over time. In the last 50 years, U.S. stocks have gone up about 32 times. Let me repeat that. In the last 50 years, U.S. equities, U.S. stocks, have gone up about 32 times. Now, it's no secret why, over the same period of time, earnings went up about 35 times. And so the value of these businesses followed corporate earnings. Okay, so it's 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 pretty it's, it it makes it's, it makes sense in the long run, as you can see. So why did earnings go up? Because a population grew, and productivity grew. So the population of our country grew, and the U.S. worker is really really 
productive and has grown very productive. Uh, the GDP per capita, which is to say per person, 50 years ago was about $26,000. So our economy, the size of our economy was about $26,000 per person. Today, it's about $60,000 per person. And so this earnings and this productivity was propelled by innovation. So again, we're, we're incredibly optimistic and bullish on being a shareholder in the world's great businesses. But the thing you need to remember as we try to manage behavior is in that 50 years, when stocks went up 32 times, uh, on, on two occasions, uh, the value of those stocks, if you priced them, fell by 50%. I just, I just talked about one of them during the great financial crisis. So you have to manage behavior, obviously. So with these fundamental principles in place, now we can talk a little bit about how you implement the long-term portfolio. And again, these are just some things I believe. And, and with this, I'm going to share a little bit of recent research or more recent research that continues uh, to give me um, comfort in these core principles. Okay, so the first one of these, number one, don't invest in individual stocks and bonds except perhaps government bonds. So don't invest in individual stocks and bonds or government bonds. Now, I'll make an exception for bonds if you have experts available or expertise in purchasing individual bonds and holding them for a long time. But you've got to be an expert in evaluating the credit risk uh, and, and, um, and a lot of other factors. And you've got to have enough volume uh, because the trading costs can be quite high in, in buying and selling individual bonds. So most of us don't have access to that. Most of us don't have access to expertise. Most of us don't ac uh, have access to adequate volume. And so I would my, my core principle remains the same for bonds generally, uh, and that is don't buy individual stocks and bonds. Now, I, it's okay, I think, to have a, quote, play account that you speculate and, 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 and buy individual securities. Many people do that. I don't see anything wrong with that, quite frankly. Uh, that account just has to be sized properly, meaning it needs to be small enough so that if you blow yourself up or it blows up, that it's not going to upset your financial plan. Now, I know there are plenty of examples. Matter of fact, I see it every day when people uh, come in here that have inherited a stock portfolio from their parents and they owned a handful of, quote, quality stocks that have done reasonably well over, over the long term. And that, that is certainly true in some cases, but the odds are certainly stacked against you. And do you really want to gamble your financial plan or your future on owning a handful of quality stocks? I don't personally, and I don't think most people should either. And the evidence is really clear about individual securities, trying to buy and sell individual securities. Uh, the first study that I'm going to bring, I'm going to share a couple of studies here, a couple of academic papers and, and research. Um, Michael Thimbalist at JP Morgan has done a study and he's updated it a time or two. Uh, the most recent update was in 2021, but he looks at data from 1980 through 2020. And he's basically looking at all the stocks that were in the Russell 3000 index 
over that period of time. So from 19, they were ever in it from 1980 through 2020. And by the way, the Russell 3000 index is a broad index that covers most publicly traded U.S. stocks, both large and small. So for instance, the very familiar S&P 500 would be included in this Russell 3000, I mean, I'm sorry, in this Russell 3000 index. Those stocks would be included. So it's the 3000 uh, most liquid securities in and, and, and largest securities in the United States. So it covers uh, most of the U.S. equity market, if you will. So at any rate, from 1980 through 2020, here's some shocking data for you. Over that period of time, four in 10 of these stocks suffered a catastrophic price loss, which they decline as they define as a 70% decline from, from peak levels from which they never recovered. So 40% of the companies that have ever been in the Russell, 3, uh, Russell 3000 uh, fell by 70% or more and never recovered. So four in 10. Around 40% of them had uh, had negative absolute returns and underperformed cash. So four in 10 of these stocks, you would have been better off just being in, been in cash over this period of time. And probably the one that's um, that I really focus on is two-thirds of the time, these individual stocks underperform the index itself. So roughly 66% of the time, uh, your individual stocks underperform the basket of the entire index over this period of time. And therefore, the median stock underperformed the index as well. So it's it's really it's really um, you know trying to you know trying to buy individual securities and picking the right ones is really a, a, a difficult is a difficult game, and the odds are stacked against you. A similar study um, by Hendrik uh, Bessenbinder, a professor uh, at Arizona State University, evaluated. Uh, returns of 64,000 stocks around the globe. And similarly, uh, from, ja from January 1990 through December 2020, 55% uh, of U.S. stocks and 57% of international stocks underperformed cash. Again, very similar to the J.P. Morgan study. What's even more shocking is that most of the return came from uh, about 10% of the stocks. So 90% of the stocks didn't really contribute to the return of the index. Most of it was concentrated. Um, and uh, over the full sample, going back to 1926, only about 2.5% of the stocks accounted for most of the wealth. And again, you, you don't know in advance who, which those stocks are. So their takeaway from this in the paper was, for those investors with a comparative advantage and identifying the few stocks that will create the most wealth or selecting a manager that could do so, uh, uh, um, the results obviously show that, you know, you could, you know, if you could pick a handful of stocks. But for most people, they're better off not even playing the game. It's a loser's game. You're not even, you, you shouldn't even play the game. So that's the case against trying to buy a handful of individual stocks, if you will. Number two, recognize that the future may not be like the past, 
and the need to diversify broadly, including international stocks and bonds. And so, you know, if, if stocks outperform bonds over time, which is true, uh, you know, logic would say, well, if we just own the U.S. index, we can just own the stocks for the long run, and we're, we're certain to be just fine. Well, that's not exactly true, unfortunately. The U.S. has enjoyed a great century, uh, but it's no, there's certainly no guarantee that it will repeat. And so the next paper comes from research from Professor Scott Cedarberg, who is an associate professor at Arizona, at the University of Arizona. And I heard Scott on the Rational Reminder podcast. You may remember I had Cameron Passmore, who was a principal at PWL Capital in, in Canada, on the show a while back. And he is the host of the Rational Reminder podcast, which is a, a great show if you want more technical investment stuff. Well, he had Scott Cedarberg, Professor Cedarberg, on his show uh, back last October, and he was basically reporting on his paper. And what he did in his research, he looked at 39 developed countries, the stocks in 39 developed countries from 1841 through 2019. So we're talking about a lot of data. And they, they, they cleaned up, they cleaned up the data. Because in most data sets, you have survivor bias because the companies that fall out are no longer in the index or no longer in the data. So they cleaned up the data so that it took into account companies that disappeared. And what they found was really was really quite shocking. When you look at these 39 countries, the question they were trying to ask was, what is the probability that you would under that you would not meet or beat inflation over a 30-year period. And with global stocks, including the U.S., 12% of the 30-year periods, you would have underperformed inflation, which sounds shocking to many of us because we think, you know, you'll always win with stocks. Well, that's not true in this data set. 12% of the time, you underperformed inflation over a 30-year period with stocks. Now, if you think that's bad news, uh, and it is, the news is somewhat better for international. If you had globally diversified stocks all over the globe, that percentage went down to 4%. So 4% probability over a 30-year period that you would have underperformed inflation if you invested internationally. And this isn't talking about an investor in the U.S. investing all over the globe and investing in, say, Germany, investing all over the globe, an investor in Japan, investing all over the globe. So, again, 12% for U.S. stocks, 4% if you were diversified uh, globally. Now, as bad or as scary as that may seem, that it's not as certain as we sometimes think it is, uh, bonds was, were even worse. 27% of the time, over a 30-year period, bonds did not beat inflation. So they had negative real returns. So negative returns after the impact of inflation. So stocks were 12%, bonds were 27%. And cash was 37%. So the point I'm making is um, we don't know the future. We don't know which outcome we're going to have. But being globally diversified can help. And 
just understanding the possibilities or the probabilities. And really, the, the what really hurts is inflation. I mean, that's what's really hurting here. And so that's that 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 enhances the case for international diversification, because part of the reason that the international statistics were better was because the impact of currencies uh, in in the individual investors' country. Because what happens is uh, when inflation is high domestically, the currency of that country tends to depreciate, which means international investments do better. And so it acts as a bit of a hedge. So while stocks do not do as well in inflationary environments as they do in stable environments or disinflationary environments, they do still provide a, a, a reasonable hedge and global investments are even better. So stocks are safer than bonds based on that statistic over long periods of time. Um, but we have to, you know, we just have to recognize that the future is uncertain and not knowable. And there's no guarantee. Number three, employ an evidence-based approach. Now, those of you who have heard this show, this is not a new story. And so I could probably hit this part fairly quickly. I think you needed to figure out where you want to be on this continuum from, you know, picking a handful of stocks, going up the continuum a bit to investing in active managers or active strategies, whether those are mutual funds or uh, separate accounts and annuities and insurance or uh, hedge fund or private equity. I'll call that all active. So that would be you know, you know, at least it's diversified, but it's still active. And then going out further to what I'll call systematic active, where you're where you're using some factors that we're going to talk about. And then finally, the final step on this continuum might just be market cap weighted indexes. So you go on one side of the continuum, just owning a handful of stocks. Then you go on up, you go, okay, I'm going to be more diversified than just a handful of stocks, but I'm going to use active stock pickers. Uh, or bond pickers, and then you go out a little further on the continuum and you say, you know what, I'm going to start with a passive index, but I'm going to tilt to systematic active and overweight uh, types of businesses that have higher expected returns, and then all the way out on the right side of the continuum, you just own index funds or market cap weighted indexes. And I guess if you went all the way out to the right, you would own those indexes and you would market cap weight it around the globe. So you would just own the same percentage around the globe as uh, as is represented by the opportunity set. So that might mean you might have 55% in U.S. stocks and 45% in international stocks, and you're going to use all passive index. Um, so when I say an evidence-based approach, I'm really talking about the systematic active, what I'll call systematic active. Uh, and so the case for not using active is the studies show that most of them don't beat the passive indexes after cost over time. Uh, when you factor in risk, it's even worse. But you know there are plenty of studies. Dimensional has a study that they do every year. I've, I've shared that with you many times. Um, uh, there's a there's a group called Spiva that does a, a, an analysis of active managers versus passive, and the, the 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 results are pretty consistent that these active managers don't add enough value. Uh, but there are factors that do add value, and and you've heard me talk about that as well. And so, 
you want to, if you're going to do, and that's what we do, we tilt to these factors and there's several, there's a size factor. So smaller companies over time have, have had higher returns than large companies. Um, low price to fundamental companies have tended to outperform high price to fundamental companies. Uh, more profitable companies have tended to outperform less profitable companies. Um, companies that have done well recently tend to continue to do well longer than you might expect statistically. That's called momentum. So there are some factors that can add can add some benefit over just a market cap weighted index. And we believe that those make sense and that you should consider those. Uh, and that's what we do in our strategies. We tilt to these to these factors. Um, uh, so that's evidence-based investing was that third point, I guess, consider evidence-based investing. The fourth point is even with evidence-based investing, you have to recognize that uh, these, these premiums are, are, are also volatile, you know, small, better than large, value, more than growth, uh, you know, um, uh, more profitable, better than less profitable, and so forth. They don't work all the time, but they are they are persistent over time. I mean, going back to 1926, small companies beat large companies by 2% a year in the U.S., according to Dimensionals Research. You know, value stocks have beaten uh, growth stocks by their definition by about 3% a year. Profitability, more profitable companies have beaten less profitable companies. So it is persistent. These premiums are persistent, but they don't happen all the time. And that's really the next point. And um, uh, Gene Fama um, and, and, um, um, and his um, co-researcher, uh, um, French, so the Fama and French, they, they updated their research on these factors back in 2016. Uh, and they, they updated that research yet again in May of 18. And what they were trying to determine is how often do these factors win? And so are they persistent over the long term? And what they found is because of the volatility in the factors, there are three and five year periods pretty regularly where individual factors don't win. Uh, and so tilting these factors, I think, makes a lot of sense. But you have to diversify the factors because they don't always win. So the chance of a factor underperforming just the broad market. Um, is not insignificant over a three to five year period. And it's still there even over a 10 and 20 year period. It's just the odds are, mu are much lower. So the point of this, I think for me, is you if you're going to do this, if you're going to tilt to these factors, A, you need broad diversification in the factors in these dimensions, which we do. And number two, you've got to recognize that they don't win every day. And, and, and just as you have diversification an asset class, you need diversification in the factors and um, and, and, a, and a stomach for understanding. And and I believe uh, that over time that these these can add value. And I've talked a bit on the show about some of anti elements research about lower expected returns and and I, and I think that uh, you know that th this can be this can be helpful. Uh, the last point I'll make uh, on this continuum, if you will, is you can determine, do you want to go even further and use what some might call, quote, alternative asset classes? 
And alternative asset classes could be a lot of things. You know, alternative is sort of a catchphrase for a lot of strategies. There are only a few that I would even uh, entertain uh, for our clients, but we have chosen not to use them. Uh, and the reason we've chosen not to use them is we believe that by tilting to these other factors, maybe more than some firms might, uh, there's no need to go further. And the problem that I find with some of the alternative strategies uh, is they're complicated and they're hard to understand. They're, they're generally more expensive and they're generally less tax efficient. Uh, so I believe if we can get our clients there with uh, big enough tilts to these factors that are more liquid, lower cost, and easier to understand because they make economic sense, our clients have a higher probability of success. And most importantly, as David Booth said, they have a strategy that they'll stick with. Again, I'm not suggesting this is the way that everybody should do it. That's just what we believe in our practice. You know, my wife and I are, are going to a conference that we went to last year um, here in a couple months or in a month or so uh, to Huntington Beach, California. Uh, and in my book, The Money Meaning Journey, I use this analogy. So if you read it, this is going to be uh, a replay. <laughs> so we're going to Huntington Beach in, uh, in, in September, I think it is, for this conference, which is Orange County, California, you know, uh, just south of L.A. Uh, now, we're not driving, as you, as you can probably imagine, but if we were driving, you can think about this continuum uh, kind of like this. Uh, so if you have a solid financial plan that's reasonably well diversified, based on your need, ability, and tolerance for risk. That might get me on this uh, on this trip, per se, about halfway there. It might get me to Oklahoma City, as an example. Uh, if I go further and I diversify internationally and I include small caps and emerging markets and, again, more diversified in terms of the fixed income, that might get me all the way to Albuquerque. Um, if I add a rules-based approach and I rebalance and I do tax loss harvesting, um, that can get me even further of my way to the journey. That can get me all the way perhaps to Flagstaff, Arizona. And then finally, if I tilt to these factors that have higher expected returns and diversify, uh, it can get me the rest of the way to Huntington Beach, California. So I'm not suggesting everybody has to do this. I just believe it could be the difference in getting all the way there, especially in an environment where expected returns could be a bit lower. So in summary, the goal here is to be clear on what game you're playing and be clear about your philosophy so that you can stick with it when it doesn't appear to be working, quote, now. And so the goal is not to have a strategy that always works. The strategy, the goal is to have a strategy that works over time. Uh, so there will be times when it looks like it's not working, like late 98, 99, and you know, during the stay-at-home environment with the with the tech bubble, and even maybe year to date when when some of these more diversified approaches aren't doing as well as putting all your money in a handful of large. AI tech stocks. Uh, so be clear about what you what you believe. Uh, I wrote a paper about this or a blog about this back in uh, June. You can check it out 
on Tandem Growth Perspective. Uh, I'm sorry, on the Tandem Growth website. It's under the Tandem Growth Perspective section. Uh, the, the article is called, What Are You Doing With Your Portfolios in This Environment? Uh, I also talked about this a bit in my semi-annual investment review. Um, if you enjoyed the show, you can check out past episodes on iTunes. You can also check them out on the Tandem Growth website. Uh, I'd love for you to give me some feedback if you thought the show was useful uh, and certainly chime in. If you'd like to email me, you can email me at moneyandmeaning at tannengrowth.com. Uh, if you want to learn more about my book, The Money and Meaning Journey, A Guide to Clarity, Financial Confidence, and Joy, you can check that out at all major online retailers. And you can also get additional bonus material that you may find useful at jeffbernierauthor.com. As always, been a pleasure hanging out with you. I hope you found this useful and have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com. Or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.